Last week was an exciting uh, celebration in the life of this community with our barbecue and bluegrass. We had over 1,300 people who stayed after worship, after school last week in order to join us to celebrate, to gather together, and to mark a new life and a new future and a new chapter for that, which is the movement and the community that is Peachtree Presbyterian Church. And We've had already 580 families respond to the plea of making a generational investment that over the course of the next three years beyond what our typical tithes and offerings are, to make a disruptive investment to help to change the trajectory and to catalyze the movement of what God is doing in and through us over the course of the next generation. And so my friends, we're working. We're moving. And you know how sometimes when you're a part of organizations where they talk a lot about vision and about that the one day, one day, one day this is going to happen? That is not going to be our delay because we are starting in a matter of 10 days in terms of not only the construction that has begun on the Fellowship Hall, which we anticipate to be finished in September, but that next Sunday, Mother's Day, which is the third highest holy day of the year in the life of the calendar of the church. (laughs) And let that be a reminder to you, if you haven't bought the requisite card or present or whatever it is, uh, that next Sunday will be our last Sunday in the sanctuary before the renovations begin. And so we are moving ahead in faith to see what God might do in and through this community. I'm so excited. So help us to spread the word that after Mother's Day, we're going to be across the street. Both sides of both, si- both services will be on that side of the street to take advantage of the summer rhythm, which has fewer programs and lower attendance. Not that we pray for lower attendance, but it is how you respond. And so that we're able to accommodate that and we will get the ball moving on this construction and try to do as minimum a disruption to the life and the community and the ministry of this church. We are not stopping ministry. We're just gonna have to do some holy flexibility for a little while. So uh, we hope that you'll join us next Sunday as we celebrate in this sanctuary and we begin this new chapter together. I wanna begin today's message by asking you to Uh, join with me for a disruptive moment in the Conwisher household. We moved here in December of 2016, and our daughters jumped into the middle of 6th and 7th grade, always really challenging to jump into the middle of a school midway through it. And then as Ashby, our youngest daughter, was finishing up her 6th grade year, her teachers asked us for a little conference and said, we think that you ought to ask a professional to do some testing with Ashby. We just think that that something's not connecting in the way that we anticipated. And so we did that testing and we met with the person who administered all of those tests. And the person who was administering all of those kind of exams to try to help us to understand Ashby's learning profile said unequivocally that Ashby was dealing with a dyslexia diagnosis. I immediately laughed and dismissed it and said, there's absolutely no way. And she said, why do you say that? I said, the child loves to read. I have to go into her room at night and rip the book or the Kindle out of her hand. And you're telling me she's dyslexic? And she leaned into me and she said, just because she loves to do something doesn't mean that it's easy. Or that she has the same learning profile that a traditional student does. 
I felt like I had been hit in the stomach. Not only because I had missed something for so long, because that's such a late diagnosis for dyslexia, and I immediately know how hard it is to catch up. But also that my stubbornness had been unwilling to see something that had been there all along. And I'll let you know a little bit of a fun celebration for the Conwisher family. Next week, Ashby is graduating from high school. And not only is she graduating from high school, having to have been homeschooled for a year, which was difficult for all of the Conwishers, homeschooled for a year to do an intervention on dyslexia, Ashby, I'm going to brag on her for a little bit, scored a perfect reading score on her ACT just this last year. I wonder if you can think of a moment in your life when you've had a significant revelation. I wonder if you can think of a moment in your life where all of a sudden new information was presented to you, information from the outside that causes you to rethink, reconsider, and have to reevaluate where you are going into your future. Webster describes revelation in this way as an enlightening disclosure, often a surprise. And what we're about to see in today's story is we are about to see an enlightening disclosure and surprise with three different revelations that come to us from Matthew chapter 16. Those three revelations will help us to understand three things. One, who Jesus really is. Two, what he came to do. And three, what that means for you. We're going to start reading in Matthew chapter 16, and as we do so, feel free to open your journals that hopefully you've brought with you or the Bible that's available in the pew rack in front of you. We're going to start reading in the 13th verse of Matthew chapter 16. Now, when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say the Son of Man is? And they said, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and others say Jeremiah or one of the prophets. And he said to them, but who do you say that I am? Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my father who is in heaven. This is a famous part, maybe one of the most famous parts of all of the story of Matthew. And we need to realize that before there is the great commission to go out into all the world and to make disciples, before there is a great commandment to love the Lord your God with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and to love your neighbor yourself, before both of those things, there is what is known as the great confession. So there is a great confession, a great commandment, and then a great commission. But most of the time, we only know of the great commandment and the great commission. This part of the story is known as the great confession. It is when it is revealed to Peter and Peter confesses the true identity of Jesus the Christ. He calls him the Messiah, the King the anointed one, the Savior. 
Now, where this happens is significant. Geography often gives us a really clue, a really significant clue to the context. I want to show you a picture here. We were just there this last March. Here is a picture of my wife and me standing in front of a cave in front of Caesarea Philippi. You can see the mouth of the large cave up there. We're wearing some very strange t-shirts, mine in fire engine red and Kelly's in white, that has Hebrew lettering on it. This was my birthday. This was a a t-shirt that I was required to wear and that everybody on the tour wore that says in Hebrew, Pastor Rich is 50 on it. On the back of my red t-shirt, it said, I am Pastor Rich. (laughs) People saying to me in Korean and in Spanish and in Mandarin all about the course of the day. And there we were on my 50th birthday in Caesarea Philippi at the top of that cave, which is known to be the gate of the underworld, the gate of death and hell itself. That's right. My wife took me on my birthday to the very gate of hell. (laughs) And what's significant about this is that when Jesus says the gates of hell will not prevail against the church, that when Jesus hears the great confession of Peter, when Peter says, you are the Christ, the son of the living God, that this takes place in a particular location, that there at Caesarea Philippi, at the place that was said to be the gate of the underworld for the realm of the dead, that this is the very location to where Peter says, You are the son of the God who is alive. When Jesus asks these questions, the first question is an interesting one. Who do people say that I am? Elijah, John the Baptist, other different kind of polling numbers. And then Jesus says, but who do you say that I am? I don't know if you saw the funny news story of a guy who was experiencing his birthday in Bristol, UK, and was on a pub crawl, which goes and means that you go to one location, and you you celebrate, and you eat, and you drink, and then you walk to the next location, and you eat, and you drink some more, and you go to the third location, and he decided to dress up on his pub crawl as his favorite character in literature and in film, and that is of Gandalf the Grey of the Lord of the Rings. And as he's going about on his pub crawl and he's um, on his way to his third location, which is mean, which translation, subtitles, he has had a few. He's on his way to his third location. He is making his way with his buddies when somebody shouts in the streets, would you like to meet the real Gandalf? Here's a picture of it. Ian McKellen, the actor, was actually on the streets of Bristol, noticing that there was a man who was dressed up for his birthday like Gandalf and invited him to be able to meet with him. In other words, what was an idea, what was play acting, What was first a concept turned into a personal encounter? This is what Jesus says when he says, who do people say that I am? And then he says, 
Who am I to you? Who do you say that I am? You cannot answer this question in a hypothetical. You can only answer this question in reality. Who is Jesus to you? And his true identity does not come from within you, but is revealed from God himself who is above. Faith is a gift. Jesus is the Christ, the King, the Messiah, the Anointed One. And so this is who Jesus really is. The second revelation is what Jesus came to do. Peter got the answer right in the first one, and Jesus affirms the answer that Peter gives and the faith on which he stands. But Peter is about to get the second thing wrong. It's a revelation from being in the wrong. And so let's look at Matthew chapter 16. Let's skip ahead to verse 21. From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, far be it from you, Lord, this shall never happen to you. But he turned and said to Peter, get behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance to me. For you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. And so as right as Peter is in the first encounter, he is wrong here. Peter is right in the revelation and the understanding of the identity of Jesus in terms of the title of it. But Peter does not understand, he has a false notion of what the Messiah had come to do. Jesus, in accordance with the prophets, was laying out the path of the nature of who he was going to be as king. This is his job description, according to Jesus, that it will involve suffering and death and being raised again. When we were last in Israel, one of the more common questions that our tour guide would get was, with all of these amazing sites and with all of the historical evidence and with the scripture itself, how come more people don't believe in Jesus in Israel? And the tour guide said, oh, that's easy. They don't believe in Jesus as much as in Israel as you would expect because what they are looking for in a Messiah was very different from the way that Jesus was Messiah. They were looking for a military leader who was going to kick the Romans out. They were looking for a political leader that was going to establish a just and fair rule. They were looking for a religious leader that was going to take over the temple. And Jesus wouldn't conform to any of those expectations. Because the primary calling of Jesus was to be the suffering servant who would die on the cross for your sins and for mine. And this didn't conform to what they thought the Messiah should do and what they wanted him to do. We have a tendency to worship the God that we want instead of the God who is. And Jesus loves you too much to conform to your expectations. And so who Jesus really is, is a revelation from above, that he is the Messiah. The second revelation is what Jesus came to do, that he came to die and to be raised. 
And then there's what's the implications for us? The revelation of what does that mean for you? Let's keep reading in verse 24. Then Jesus told his disciples, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. For whoever would save his life would lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what shall a man give in return for his soul? Famous words that remind us of not only who Jesus is and what he came to do, but what our job description. What does this mean for us? It means three very challenging things. That your life is one of denial in following Jesus, not affirmation. Jesus is not here to affirm any desire that you have within you. You do not get to always be right with Jesus. That we're to follow, we're not to lead. You and I have a tendency to want to get out in front of Jesus, to be in charge, to be in control. The oldest sin in the book in Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden was that we wanted to be our own gods to determine what was right and wrong and good and evil for ourselves with the forbidden fruit. And thirdly, that we try to rescue our own lives when in reality we have to let them go. We have to lose them. I don't know about you, but I struggle with always needing to be right, always needing to be in control, and always needing to win. And so what does it mean for Jesus to be the Messiah and for him to come and to lay down his life in the cross? It means that he invites us into the vocation of picking up our cross and following him, laying down our need to be right, laying down our need to win, laying down our desire, our quest for always being in charge. Do you take seriously what Jesus said, that you are to pick up the cross? Is that just some fancy language for being on team Jesus? Or is there something more to it than that? I want to introduce you to a person by the name of Frank Laubach. Here is a picture of him. Very accomplished as a young man, especially educationally. Frank went to Princeton University for undergraduate and then for a master's degree. He went to Union Theological Seminary in New York. And then he ended up going to Columbia in order to get his PhD bright, articulate, good leadership skills, got married, started his family, started doing some mission work in the Philippines. At the same time, he was also involved in a variety of different educational institutions, and he was in line in order to be the next president of one of those educational institutions, one of those seminaries. 
He experienced profound disappointment in a couple of ways. One, three of his children died of malaria while he was in the Philippines. And then secondly, by some backwards politicking and backstabbing, he missed out on being the next president of that seminary by one vote. And so there came this moment where Frank Laubach was sitting from finishing a hike next to his dog on the top of a place called Signal Hill in the Philippines. And he's just broken. His wife and his other two children are 900 miles away in order to try to keep them safe from malaria. And in his own words, I mean, this was a guy who was a pastor, who was a Christian in conviction for sure, but he didn't really know the living Christ. And yet, in his own words, Jesus came shining through. And something happened to him. On the top of that mountain, something changed within him. There was an entirely new perspective. And then he came down from that mountain with a renewed life with God, a renewed relationship with his family, and a renewed vocation. He began to dedicate himself to working with a little pilot program and trying to take that to its conclusion. You ever heard of the phrase, each one teach one? He is the pioneer of that. You see, Frank Laubach is the primary catalyst of the worldwide literacy movement. He is the only U.S. missionary to be featured on a U.S. postage stamp. And at the top of Signal Mountain, this is what he reported God saying to him. My child, you have failed because you do not really love these people. You feel superior to them. If you can forget you're an American and think only how I love them, they will respond. To which Frank replied, God, I do not know whether you spoke to me through my own lips, but if you did, it was the truth. I hate myself. My plans have all gone to pieces. Drive me out of myself and take possession of me and think thy thoughts in my mind. And later, he would write, the Lord will not wish to count my trophies, but my scars. My friends, you and I live as type A personality Americans who are driven for success. And much of that is a beautiful thing. But like Peter, there is a shadow side where we think reality, even God himself, needs to conform to our patterns of success And that you and I are the kind of people who would rather pick up our trophies rather than picking up the cross. And yet there might be ways to be convictionally and even positionally a Christian and live with the trophies. 
that the only way to follow the Son of the living God, the Messiah, the suffering servant, is not by looking for suffering, but by living unafraid of it. And so I wonder if there's something that you need to do in denial, in following, or in letting go. Life will break each and every one of us. And the question is, will we turn to the cross in those moments? Or will we turn in ourselves?